Uh, welcome, everybody, to another installment of Innovation Crush. Uh, my name is Chris Denson, and in case you are tuning in for the first time, uh, this show covers all things marketing, innovation, ideas, creative business strategies, um, and just some fun, fun, creative people that are out in the world doing stuff. So uh, the book doesn't stop today as we are joined by Chris Redlitz. Say hello, Chris. Hello, how are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? It's uh, it's going to be a little ironic that we're both named Chris, so um, hopefully people will know who's talking when they're listening to the interview. Okay. <laughs> um, I guess for starters, I mean, I, I know who you are, and I'm, I'm like thoroughly, thoroughly impressed by uh, what you've been able to, to accomplish, uh, specifically with The Last Mile. But uh, if you don't mind, just giving a little bit of a, a, a one-on-one on you and how The Last Mile came to be. Yeah, I, I live in San Francisco. I have an office in San Francisco. I uh, am a, a managing partner of a venture firm called Transmedia Capital, uh, and we invest in early-stage uh, companies, seed-stage companies, focused primarily on digital media, uh, mobile commerce, that type of thing. So with that said, that makes me a perfect candidate to run a prison program. Exactly. Um, <laughs> um, makes perfect so sense. So really, it, it, uh, it happened sort of by accident. Uh, about five years ago, I was invited into San Quentin, which is about 30 minutes north of San Francisco. Uh, you know, it's the oldest prison in California. It was um, uh, built in 1852, um, and it still looks about the same. It's a pretty ominous place, but I was... Um, I was invited in to speak to a group of men about uh, entrepreneurship, um, and I did it as a favor, a bit reluctantly, not knowing what I would encounter. And it was, it was, I mean, it was, it was pretty daunting, to be honest with you. Um, it was at night, uh, and who you know, who produced this uh, event <laughs> at night uh, in a prison? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was almost like it was, it was it was kind of ironic. It was almost like Field of Dreams, because it was sort of drizzling that night, and these guys were coming out of sort of the darkness uh, into this classroom, and uh, there were about seventy guys packed in this room, and and I started talking, and um, it it almost immediately involved uh, evolved into a conversation where these guys were asking questions, and you know it was probably the most engaged group I'd ever spoken to. You know, they were really focused. There's no cell phones in prison, so no one's checking their email. And, uh, you know, that 30-minute talk turned, turned into about a two-and-a-half-hour session. And um, I was completely sort of blown away, and it really changed my, my, my perception. Uh, so I drove home that night, and I um, walked in the door and, and told my wife, Beverly, who's also been my business partner for the last 18 years, I told her what I'd seen and I said, you know, we could actually do a tech incubator in prison. And she looked at me and she said, no effing way am I spending my time in prison. <laughs> so, um, so that was a good start. But, um, but you know, she, I, I knew I couldn't do it without her um, because we've really done everything together and it's been a, a joint effort all these years. So um, I really asked her to be open-minded about it and we, we did some education for ourselves because we were pretty ignorant about, about the problem. Um, and, you know, the, the cost of incarceration, the recidivism rates, and, and all of that, that really struck us. And then I invited her back in, and she came in, met the guys, and 
she agreed, I guess, reluctantly initially, but um, uh, we started the program five years ago, and it's um, it's hugely resonated inside. Um, you know, we've had some great success stories. Uh, we just launched our computer coding curriculum that we had the first graduating class of in um, in April, uh, and we're expanding in California. We just got a grant from this, the California Department of Corrections to in, to expand in California. I was in New York last week meeting with Governor Cuomo's people about expanding in, in New York, and we've had outreach from 14 different states. So what turned out to be a sort of an inkling of an idea has really exploded into uh, something that's really resonated with many, many people. Um, so that's a long answer to your question. Yeah, that's no, that's a great answer. It, it's, it's amazing. I'm, and and uh, kudos to you for wearing the pants in the family and getting your wife to go to prison with you. Um, it's really not. It's really not true. But, you know. <laughs> um, I'm so I'm curious about that. That so that this this dark and stormy night, right? The the first time you go in here, uh, what 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 drove the conversation? Right, you go in to speak for a half hour. You stay two hours later. Um, what were the some of the passionate points that you were able to hit um, conversationally? And what was that conversation like? You know, with with the with the original group of people you spoke to. Well, I mean, I, I started talking about, um, you know, what we look for in entrepreneurs, you know, and and um, and I think that really struck a chord, like, do you guys want to know, well, am I one of those people? What are you looking for, you know? And, and matter of fact, I'm working on a business. Let me pitch it to you, you know, and, and it just turned into that type of thing. I, I mean, guys handed me full-on business plans that they had, they had created that they never had a chance to talk to anybody about. All of a sudden, they have someone who's in that market that they can actually talk to. I mean, we discussed valuations. We discussed, you know, seed funding. We discussed different market sectors. I mean, it was pretty amazing to me um, how well-versed they were because they can subscribe to magazines and newspapers. They can watch TV. They can read books. And they had, you know, really done their homework. So um, it was this thirst for knowledge that had been sort of sitting dormant because they had no one to talk to. And all of a sudden, this guy comes in that's sort of speaking language they want to, they're interested in, and it was just, um, you know, it was an incredible discussion. And um, and a shout out to uh, Andy Timoner, a guest on the show and a friend of mine who um, she did a documentary on the last mile that debuted at South by Southwest this year, um, which I, I watched and and ha- even had a couple of personal tearful moments. Um, don't tell uh-huh. any, don't tell anybody I told you that. But um, but you know one of the one of the lines is, that struck me almost like a, as a surprise, but a, almost like a oh yeah, um, was this idea that you know a lot of the guys that are in the program or just you know in prison have never even seen the internet right like right. You, you know um how do you how did you go about translating to those specific individuals right like how did you go about explaining like what the internet is right it's something that we yeah. have already grown to take for granted and like this yeah. idea of connectivity but for somebody who's very disconnected from the world um how do you go about explaining what the internet is well, um, we we can show video, and uh, they read books um, that really talk about it. The first book that we use every session is a book by Guy Kawasaki called Enchantment, and it really talks about how you use social media and media in your daily life, and it's a good sort of warm-up to other books that they read, but even more so, we bring in a lot of people from the outside, 
um, because the proximity of San Quentin to San Francisco, we have access to many, many people. Um, it could be portfolio CEOs. Um, it could be, you know, other venture guys, uh, technologists. We have sessions on um, how you build an app. Um, what are the ter what's the terminology about, um, you know, apps? You know, they they understand what SDKs are and and building using APIs, and they they understand all the nomenclature, even though they haven't touched it. Um, and when they start, when they get back on the street, they have this. Um, knowledge base of information that's been articulated to them, uh, even though they haven't touched it, they know a lot about what's going on in the market. In addition to that, you know, part of the, uh, the last mile um, initiative was to really increase transparency so that people could sort of at arm's length experience what I experienced that first night by allowing these guys to write blog, they answer questions on Quora, they're on Twitter, and all of this is facilitated by us because they can't obviously uh, directly input it. So they write it out or type out their their uh, blog posts or whatever they're doing, and we have uh, volunteers that upload that content. But that really allows them to experience sort of social media and this interaction that we experience real time. They experience it not real time, but you know, we print out the responses that they get and, and bring those printouts in, so it may be a week or two lag, but they get that experience, and they're very active. I mean, you can go on Quora, and you can see a lot of the guys' profiles and what they've written about, and some of the stuff's pretty heavy. You know, um, Tommy Winfrey is one of the guys, and he wrote, uh, answered a question on Quora, how does it feel to murder someone, you know? And that's pretty heavy stuff. Um, Kenyatta Liel actually won the Quora Answer of the Year in 2012 at the, at the um, Shorty Awards in New York um, for his answer to what does the first day of a five-plus-year sentence feel like? Wow. You know? So it gives people that, that uh, at least a, a window into what we're experiencing, and it also gives the guys a chance to really become transparent and one of the things that we, uh, we tell employers when we place them into internships is that you can ask them anything, you know, and you can ask them about their background, their crime, their experience in prison, um, and that's something that they've had to evolve over time to feel comfortable doing that, but it really allows people now outside to not feel like they have to sort of walk on eggshells, right? And uh, that's really helped the process a lot. No, it's interesting. I mean, to, to sort of demystify what it means to be, you know, incarcerated or a felon or, you know, whatever uh, vocabulary term we, we choose to to address these these guys by. Um, and do you find that I mean, is, does that reduce sort of the suspicion? Do people feel comfortable? Do, like, do people go overboard in asking too many questions um, or is it kind of like you get it out of the way and then you move on to like the next day of work? Yeah, it's pretty much um, people move on. I mean, really, it's uh, one of those things where if you know that there's nothing that, you know, is you can't go, you know, you can't talk about, then it just makes people feel comfortable. But we found that people just sort of move on. And, um, uh, you know, it, it after a couple of weeks, because of these guys, you know, are so motivated, their enthusiasm just resonates. Um, Darnell Hill was one that was in the in documentary you saw. I loved him. You know, he, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, he. I mean, he served 24 years. Yep. He got out um, 
and he had also been in front of the parole board five times. His sixth time, they actually let him pitch his business idea, and that is what um, really sort of set him to be found suitable was um, the confidence and the preparedness that he had um, shown through the Last Mile program, and that got his freedom. Um, and he talks a little bit about that in the documentary, but, um, uh, you know, I got an email from uh, his manager like about a month after he started, and she said, you know, Darnell is the best employee we've ever hired, period. That's fantastic. Um, just his work ethic is phenomenal. And, um, you know, there's part of the documentary, too, where it talks about Darnell doing his crimes with his dad. You know, you talk about um, guys that really didn't have a chance. Here's a guy who basically was committing crimes with his dad as a way to have a relationship with his dad, and he actually was a cellmate with his dad in San Quentin. Um, so that's pretty pretty incredible that he can actually um, take that background and turn it into positive and uh, be a really positive member of society today. And he is just an enthusiastic guy that just, you know, he lights up a room. It's amazing. Um, did you face any hurdles at the beginning? Right, because I think you go and you have these. You know, you have this dark and stormy night conversation. I'm going to keep referring to it as a dark and stormy night, just because sure. I, I want to. Um, no, but you go and you have this conversation on the first night, and then you know, some time passes. You, you get to the blessing of your wife. You create this incubator. What were some of the hurdles that you probably faced? Because I can imagine, like when I tell people about this, uh-huh. you know, the last mile, they go, "Well, the technology in prison, like that's that's dangerous," you know. Um, and so I would imagine like you faced a lot of opposition in terms of going in and helping create businesses or did you, or, or am I absolutely wrong? Um, you know, I think the, um, the resistance was around, uh, or maybe just the questions around initially when we started the last mile with the social media part where, you know, we're going to actually let these guys, um, publish, uh, or publish what they're talking about and what they're saying. Um, so there was some reluctance there, I think, initially. Um, but then, you know, obviously the, the reaction that we received was so positive that they realized they, sort of administration and CDCR, really realized that this this is a positive for everyone. Um, so I can't say that, that they were negative or it was difficult. It's just, I mean, I, I work in the startup environment, right, where every day you, you try to move a million miles an hour. And, uh, you know, when you're dealing with bureaucracy, it just moves slower, right? right? So we had to develop a sense of patience. Uh, and we realized that we could not even suggest, uh, you know, computer programming coding inside until we got to a point of trust and sort of legitimacy. So we didn't even approach that for the first two years, even though that was in the back of my mind all along. But we had to show that we were real, that you know that we um, that we had results before we could move down that path. So it's been sort of an incremental growth based on you know gaining trust and support and so forth to the point now where they're very very supportive and it's uh, it really I I truly look at it as a partnership now. The other thing is that we didn't ask for money, and I think that was uh, another thing that, um, you know, we tried to keep it as frictionless as possible. So we self-funded it initially, and, um, you know, we, we didn't, didn't try to put any sort of, uh, you know, onerous things upon them or ask them to do anything. We tried to work around all of the, all of the protocol that they had, and that, I think, worked well. So, you know, it was, there wasn't a lot of heavy lifting in their part, and I think that made it a lot easier. 
That's great. And I think when you when you mentioned, um, I mean, the passion that these guys have, and also one of the things that stood out for me from the documentary was they have a, a very different perspective on life and just basic needs. So when you're thinking about a business and what kind of business you're going to start, it's usually based on, you know, some form of experience you've had. Um, can you walk yeah. us through a couple of examples of things that have been incubated or things that we can probably even find in the marketplace today? Yeah, I mean, we're just getting that point um, because what we require is that they work in an internship for a period of time, and they're out in the market before they try to start anything at all. Um, so, you know, we have a, a, a 10 guys that are out um, right now. A few of them now are pursuing those, those opportunities that they created inside. So um, I think we're going to see more and more of those now that we have a time frame where they actually made that transition. But I think it's dangerous to say, okay, you know, you walk out the door and you start a business. That just doesn't make sense. Right, we want right. really them to work within businesses, get that support, and really get truly acclimated. And that may take, take a year or more. Um, but a couple of examples. One is James Houston, who was in our founding class. Um, he actually worked for Ribbon.co, which is a, a mobile payments company here in San Francisco. And then after that, he really pursued what he wanted to do, and that was go back to his neighborhood in Richmond and uh, work with at-risk youth. Um, so his title is Senior Peacekeeper, and what he does is he goes in the streets every day and, and you know works with the guys. Um, and what he created inside was something called Teen Tech Hub, and it's basically an after-school program for kids in the neighborhood from uh, ages 9 to 14. Uh, he just took over a, um, one of the satellite um, facilities, the after-school facilities, sort of like a, a boys' club-ish type of thing uh, for kids to go after school, and we're planning on implementing his Teen Tech Hub uh, plan there, uh, you know, within the next six months or so. So that, you know, was a dream for him because he really had worked a lot with youth while he was inside. There's actually a program called Squires, that brings at-risk youth into the prison, and they and they are sort of walked through the prison. It's a little bit like Scared Straight, and James was one of the leaders of that program, so he wanted to continue what he was doing inside. Uh, so that's an example. Um, another one is um, Ray Hartz, who uh, is from Pittsburgh in the East Bay also, and a very, very violent um, upbringing. He had, I think it was seven of his uh, family members within a nine-year period were killed. Wow. Uh, so he um, and he he actually was incarcerated for uh, voluntary manslaughter in a in a drug sort of drug deal that went bad. But um, you know, for him, carrying a weapon was pretty normal because everybody you know in his family was exposed to violence, and many many people, as I said, were were injured. Um, so his focus really was to say, can I go back to my community? and create a more healthy environment. So he created something called Healthy Hearts Institute, which is he just got his nonprofit status, and he wants to go back and teach um, health, uh, because obviously obesity in underserved neighborhoods is big also. Um, and, and Ray is a big fitness guy. He's uh, super fit. So, you know, that's what he's pursuing right now, and that's also something he developed inside. So those are two examples. Those are and those are fantastic examples, right? Just kind of in the entertainment business, they say write what you know, and just kind of like finding those those passion points that are that are right for you. I'm curious as to like, you know, what has what has doing this done for you? 
right? Because I can, I can imagine sometimes when I have the conversations and I do these interviews, I, I get kind of fired up because I hear what somebody else is doing and it kind of reinvigorates a passion in me uh, most times. Um, but I'm curious as to like, what is your sort of emotional response to to the interactions that you had in this and the success you've had so far? It makes me really tired. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Boring. Uh, oh, no, no, it's, uh, it's, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things where I never was the, the most charitable, socially conscious person. I sort of joke about, you know, I'd walk out of the store Christmas time and I'd walk by the Santa Claus ringing the bell and never drop a dime in. Um, and all of a sudden now I'm running a nonprofit. It just doesn't make any sense necessarily. But, um, you know, I think uh, it just, it resonated with me and with us. And I think, you know, you become sort of very passionate as an overused term about stuff. And this is something that I didn't have any sense of. So it's affected me, obviously, and us uh, in our daily lives. I mean, you know, every day, um, whether or not we're in prison teaching, whether we're working with our guys outside, whether we're doing things like you and I talking, and, and really sort of spreading the, the message of, of hope for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been, it's an emotional roller coaster too, because, you know, you, uh, you, we try not to get too, especially when you're inside, there's a certain distance that you have to keep, you know, and like there's, a physical there's distance, something you about over-familiarity that's really critical yeah. that you don't become over-familiar in prison. So you have to sort of check your emotions inside. Um, but, you know, when Darnell Hill walked out of prison after 24 years and the woman that he married 24 years prior was waiting for him at the gate, you know, that just knocks you out, right? Um, so those type of things are drivers. And sometimes when you get really exhausted, which you do a lot of times, you see some guy just have an epiphany inside that's, that's life-changing that's just, um, it's better than any sort of business success that you can imagine. So, um, yeah, it's been hugely uh, impactful for us. The people we've met have been so extraordinary that, uh, you know, I can't imagine not doing this. And, and speaking of that, like, you know, transitioning back into Transmedia or Kick Labs or, some, you know, some of the other things that you have going on, you know, what it, it, what's it like kind of transitioning from one to the other? You know, do you and what are some of the key differences you see outside, outside of the obvious? Right. Um, but in terms of the businesses that you're developing in the I'll call it the free world versus what you're doing, you know, in the in the behind bars. Yeah, I, I think it's it's um, it's given us some good perspective. It's also, to be honest with you, it's it's had impact on our portfolio. The guys who have come inside, and many of those guys that are the CEOs of companies that we've invested in, have been involved, and uh, it's inspiring to them. You know, I mean, if you think you're having a bad day, you know, just think about some of the guys that that are uh, that we deal with. They're having really bad days, years. You know, so it um, it sort of allows you to you know, not become so, you know, um, concerned about, you know, yourself sometimes and, and wallow at all, uh, that you, you're thankful a lot. Um, and I, and that's had a lot of impact, I think. And it's also, you know, our business is to sort of, um, evaluate people because we're so early in our investment that this is sort of, I think, helped, helped us even 
with that because we're dealing with so many people. Um, and we, we have to, when we're accepting guys in the program, we have to sort of dig a little deeper on, you know, are these guys right? So I think it's given us even a better sense of, of people that we would invest in. And what are and what are the you you bring up a, a good point right and I would imagine you know San Quentin and whatever other institutions you work with kind of pre-select a few candidates for you but you know different than having a meeting at you know, a coffee shop with you know a couple of founders of a company and getting a feel for them there you know what yep. are some of the indicators you look for in potential and success because obviously these guys like I, I have a, a cousin who was in jail for twelve years and he came out and has been doing some truly truly amazing things and every conversation with him is like fiery like and it's it's like it's so passionate it's it's scary um i'm like i, I need to go do something um but yeah. but you know just like what are some of those indicators that you look for that go okay this you know darnell's the guy right or whomever else you might run into yeah you know our, our program is zero tolerance which is if you miss a class an assignment or if you have an infraction you're out period um and if you try to bs us uh, you just can't do it. I mean, there there is a there is a the con and convict that you know um, does exist in prison where you know you try to get conned and pull stuff over. That just doesn't go, you know. And and um, that's something that we had to sort of evolve over time. But they know they can't BS me at all. And I think that's that sort of rolls over into people that we're going to invest in. I mean, don't bullshit me, you know. And and it's um, and I and I think that's part of it. It's like we want people that are real. They're going to dig in. Um, they're, you know, being an entrepreneur is hard, you know, and um, and it's be, it's become fashionable, especially in the valley. It's you know, it's become fashionable to start a company. It's not easy, and um, you know, you have to have that sort of will to do it, and it's something that you really deep down want to do, and and that comes across, you know, and I think our our sense of that is heightened now because we're we we are. Uh, we are subjected to that every day where, where we hold guys to a very high level. That's and I think that really translates our expectation of our entrepreneurs is really high. As a result, you know, we've done very well. You know, the companies in our portfolio have done extremely well, and we're fortunate for that. And I think part of it is just be able to assess people even, even better than before. And I, I do attribute some of that to our experience you know, with the last mile. Uh, I, you know, another area of parallel is you know, with the companies that you build in your accelerator on the, I'll say the outside, um, you, you know, you always put, you're putting together advisors and bringing, you know, mentors to the table and so on and so forth. Is there a different formula? Cause I noticed in the documentary, like MC hammers, uh, a, um, uh, an advisor to the program where yeah. you, you wouldn't typically, at least as far as my knowledge goes, you wouldn't typically see him, you know, in an advisory room with Foursquare when, you know, in their early days. So, um, what is the formula for bringing in the right groups of advisors in in both worlds? Well, it's funny you mentioned Hammer because people don't realize that, but he's been involved in technology for a long time. Um, he's actually an advisor for some of the companies in our portfolio as well. Nothing to do with you know his music background or being you know um, doing a lot of stuff that he does from a socially responsible point of view, um, but. Um, you know, I think uh, advisors, 
You know, there's different levels of advisors. I mean, you, you know, if you're looking uh, as a startup, you know, and you may want an advisor that just has a name, that has credibility, um, or, you know, there are advisors that actually do work, you know. So, um, so I think it depends on what you're looking for. Um, people that can open doors for you, people that can help you with strategy, um, you know, or people that just give you credibility because they're well known. I think there's different types of advisors, uh, so it's not all just cut in the same. Uh, as far as far as my pers- uh, from my perspective, um, I'm, I'm not sure if that answered your question. But yeah, no, uh, it's just I just I was just curious as, as to whether you you bring in a a different group to the Last Mile program than you would to your traditional companies, just based on sort of the you know the psychological and social nuances yeah. you've been mentioning, um, is or uh, or is it just prepping those advisors for what they're about to get, get themselves into? Yeah. Uh, yes, there are some, some it doesn't resonate with, some it, extraordinarily well. And, um, you know, sometimes it surprises me because I don't try to sell this at all. Um, matter of fact, I was having, it was a couple of years ago, I was having breakfast with a pretty well-known VC friend of mine, and, and about five minutes into it, he said, you know, we can talk about deals. Let's talk about the last mile. And, and I didn't expect that at all. And he's come in several times and spoken to the group, um, so you just never know what resonates, you know, who it's going to resonate with. Um, and I, I think part of it is that when people come in, I think they have to be feel comfortable, too, because, you know, we have a shark tank inside. We, um, we do that three times before demo day. And I ask the guys to come in, and most of them are, are VCs, come in and be pretty frank. And I think they're reluctant. The first time they're like, oh, I don't know how frank I can be. <laughs> you know, this guy's a violent criminal, right? Um, but uh, over time, they, they start to feel more comfortable, and I ask them to be as direct as possible, you know? Right. Um, and it's funny, because the guys, when they're pitching, they're really nervous. They're more nervous in Shark Tank than they are at Demo Day. It's because <laughs> of the, they don't, if they don't make it through, you know, if they don't, if they don't perform well and, and, um, and make it through, they don't get to present a Demo Day. So it's, uh, it's pretty intense. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. Um, let's talk about you for a second. Um, I mean, now that we've been talking about you, but how did you get here? Right, uh, I, you know, I read a little bit, a bit of background about uh, Reebok and ad tech and some other things that you were involved in. You know, what was your early career like? You know, that sort of steeped you um, and, and prepped you for where you are now. Yeah, you know, I um, I never thought I'd end up in technology, and certainly never thought I'd end up in venture. Um, but you know, I, I think for me, it's um, I've always sort of I guess I've followed a, a, a unconventional path. <laughs> Go figure, um, being in prison now. But um, <laughs> you know, for, it was always sort of like I, I if I was going to do do something, it was it was going to be you know all in. Like I I really wanted to. Um, to sail, you know, I grew up in Southern California, did some sailing, but I, like, I really wanted to experience that. So um, I hooked up with a couple guys, and and um, we sailed from California to Hawaii, and I was there for about uh, uh, for several months. And Wait, just did, did, well, hold on, define sailing, like, uh, I mean, a sail, and how long did uh, sailing from California to Hawaii take? <laughs> um, well, I was on a, a 32-foot Challenger. There was three of us. Um, it was before uh, GPS, so once you leave 
a hundred miles from shore, no one knows where you are. Um, and you have to use uh, a sextant, which is um, a device that gives you navigation. So it's um, so it's you know it's pretty uh, uh, pretty analog, I guess. Um, uh, it took us uh, 22 days to get there, and then when we sailed home, you have to go north and then come down and get the southern the trades. Took us 32 days to get back. Wow. Um, so you do. But, you say so, basically you do commit when you when like you said when you get ready yeah. to do something you're like you're all in. Yeah. So you know that's and then um, you know I, I was disappointing my parents because I took time off from college to do this kind of stuff. But uh, but I, w- I wanted to become a skier, so I just um, I went and lived in Alta, Utah, um, and just to immerse myself in skiing every day. And and so that's kind of how I approached it. You know, I started working with Reebok. Um, in the early 80s, I was uh, a runner, and, and it was a passion for mine, and, and I had a retail store at the time that I opened after college. And, um, you know, it's fortunate because Reebok uh, was was small at the time, and, and you know, it's sort of infamous, uh, the growth through the 80s, where it basically led the whole aerobic boom and went from uh, double-digit millions to when I left, we were doing close to $4 billion in revenue. So it's one of those um, experiences that I never thought I would would be able to replicate until the Internet came. Can we, can we, bring, can we bring aerobics back? I think, I think there's room for a resurgence of aerobics. That's, that's my startup idea. Uh, you can fund me after we get off the, off the show. Uh, maybe we can bring maybe we can bring leg warmers back. Yes, yeah, yeah, we could definitely do that. Um, I'm actually wearing some now. I don't know if you you, you can't see them, but um, it might be trendy. You never know. <laughs> no, here's here's another question though. You know this because uh, a lot of people are dabblers, right? Especially because there's so much stimuli out there. Everybody has an idea for a startup. They you know it's kind of like gas and then break, gas and then break on varying different things. Where you have you know you kind of develop this passion for diving deep going all in where did that sort of discipline come from because it takes a lot of discipline to you know say i'm going to do something and then you know like you said move from home or hit the ocean for 40 plus days um where how did that get instilled in you uh, where does it where does it come from i think you've asked my mom she said it's being irresponsible um so i think <laughs> you know it's like um doing what you want to do, but doing it all out and not following convention. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's just, um, uh, I, I'm not sure where that came from, but, uh, you know, just, you know, I, I ran a lot of marathons and you just, um, you know, you, you sort of have to dig deep, uh, to, to do that and train and do it. And, and, um, and I guess you get a lot of resiliency from doing that from, from that physical perspective. So I'm not really sure where that came from, but, um, you know, I try to, to be intense without being intense. Um, you know, I don't want to be too overly bearing on intensity. So, um, but I, you know, I think it translates well to what we're doing today where, you know, we, we really want to, we, we want to be side by side with our entrepreneurs because we know it's super intense. And we want to um, be able to support it that intensely. So, well, you may, uh, I'm not sure where it came from, but it, it seems to work. Well, you mentioned earlier, but you know, this idea of um, 
the the patience you need to have in order to 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 work with on a program like the last mile which ironically is you're a runner and an athlete in the last mile uh but also you know the the pace by which you can accelerate on the outside world <clears throat> excuse me that sounded sounded horrible sorry guys uh but no the, the you know what are what are what are the differences you see between a race and a sprint in business right and when is either of those thing yeah, appropriate so the the long distance marathon being in it for the long haul versus like okay we want to hurry up and get from point a to point z as quickly as possible well i think the uh um i think that the the patience has to come with the type of business that you have like we invest in a lot of uh enterprise SaaS. um type of businesses that take five to seven years to evolve. Um, so you have to have that sort of patience there. Um, and the sprints come really when you're looking at increasing revenue. You know, I think you have to build a base and you have to be patient about the longevity of the business. But you, you know, there, you, you just have to, um, certainly when it comes to revenue and, and building that, that becomes pretty intense. And there are certain times that you just have to really go for it. Um, but, you know, I think that's, that's a little bit of a conundrum in, in investing because we as investors are looking for liquidity and, you know, founders are potentially looking to build a business long term. So that tum- sometimes becomes a little bit of a conflict. We don't invest much in, in um, consumer-related things that have these very quick sort of exponential growth. Um, like a selfie stick. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, a classic example is something like Secret, where, you know, it's it had huge uh, uptick and then just recently died, right? So, um, we don't, we're not really involved in those type of businesses where you can consider that sort of a sprint from the start. Um, those are not things that we are particularly enamored with. So, um, I guess you consider some of our investments to be more perceived as boring, but we love annuity revenue businesses that just continue to click away and generate revenue. And those those type of businesses become really good public companies. So um, I also I also read that you are I mean, I've, you, you stated it yourself, but uh, just as far, as far as your passion for fitness goes and yeah. and also uh, that is a large part of the businesses you keep your eyes on. Um, but I'm curious as to why are we still so fat? Right. Because because I, and getting fatter, I think about, you know, CrossFit and SoulCycle and all these things. And I feel like there's like a vanity thing happening, like on the West Coast and, you know, in California, we're like, yes, of course, it's beaches and sunny and it's sunny all the time. So you want to look good. It's like the Miami problem. But you go to middle America and I don't you probably couldn't find a, a soul cycle, a, let alone, you know, the, a number of resources for health and wellness. Um, can you uh, are you can you talk a little bit about the disconnect there um, between the number of programs and then also but the escalating number of uh, obese citizens we have in the U.S.? I mean, it's really concerning. It's, it's, uh, I mean, we're more intelligent about what makes us tick than ever before. You'd think that we have an insight into being um, healthier. Just the opposite's happened, right? So, yeah, it's really, it's really daunting. And it's, um, 
it's uh, frankly it's not that hard to be healthy and it doesn't cost more if you just put effort into it so well, t- you could tell that to, know, tell I, that to the burrito i just ate um yeah well there you go um <laughs> No, I think, you know, we've become a little more complacent as a society. You know, things come easier. We, uh, you know, a lot of kids growing up are growing up indoors playing video games, and I'm not opposed to video games, but, I mean, it's just like there are, um, I think, the, um, I don't know, the uh, focus has been and the willingness for, for us to just accept uh, we shouldn't accept. We shouldn't just accept the way things are and be so tolerant. You know, I think sometimes we're just too tolerant of people. It's like you shouldn't be obese. It's you know, it's it's not only bad for you, it's bad for us because we're going to end up paying for your health. You know, right? And like this, it's just not that hard. I mean, right now I'm on a paleo diet, which um, is difficult in a way because you have to be disciplined, but it's not that hard. I mean, it's you know, people call it the caveman diet. It's pretty basic. You know, um, but you know, I've I've been fit throughout. You know, and I've had uh, I've been focused on endurance sports, but um, uh, which takes time. But you know, even with my schedule, which is pretty crazy, I still have time to work out. You know, this morning I get up at 5:30 and I do my workout. You know, and it's um, you just have to be disciplined about it. And um, you know, it's uh, I don't know. I, that it really that strikes a, 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 a pretty sensitive chord for me, yeah. Because I I personally and, and Beverly is very fit, and you know my family generally is is pretty fit. Um, so it's just I don't know if you just adopt that lifestyle at a certain point, you know, early, you can keep that going. But there's just no reason for us to be such an obese society. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's kind of ridiculous. Hey, there's a, um, there was a guest previously, this guy named Peter McGraw, who's a, a behavioral economist. And we got into this talk about like bad habits. And it, 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 one of the points he brought up was this idea that there is um, – there's no immediacy to me eating the cheeseburger, right? I, it's not like I'll eat it and die right then, right? It takes years for the cheeseburger to to stay in my arteries. <laughs> I yeah. hope you like my graphic uh, representation of this concept. But, uh, so there's but nothing, yeah, there's nothing wrong with being able to indulge once in a while. I mean, I mean, look, I don't live a militaristic existence where I can't indulge, but you know, it's a time and a place for everything. So, yeah, I no, I think yeah, I think his point was just kind of like you, you know because we're in such a uh, we live in a culture that's so immediate, right? If you look at what technology allows you, instant access to anything and instant response from everything, the things that probably take a longer time to sort of have a result, we tend to not pay attention to as much. Um, What's well, funny? I was just I was just reading an article in the journal, and they were talking about the shared economy, where you could literally not leave your house and have everything delivered to you. Yep. Right. Um, so, so there's something about that. We're making we're we're enabling people to not be mobile, uh, and maybe that's a bad thing. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a sad existence. But um, as uh, on the happiness side, um, you and your wife have been married for 18 years. And uh, I'm, I, what's, what's it like to have a wife and a business partner? And how do you guys strike uh, work-life balance? Or is there a such thing? Uh, yeah, so, so to clarify, we've been together for 18 years. We've been married for 13. 
Oh, um, okay. Five-year five so, year. So uh, uh, we actually started our relationship uh, from a business perspective first. She was a consultant. I was the CEO of a company. She was a consultant. And, um, you know, we worked together for a year and a half before we started, quote-unquote, dating. Um, but, uh, you know, so I think for us, we, we've not, we have not experienced anything other than, you know, some sort of uh, work relationship. Um, but we've had to also work really hard on making sure that there is balance. You know, we're pretty good now at, at turning on and off. Like at certain times, it's like, okay, we're done and, and we're going to move. You know, we're, this is now social time. Um, and, you, and you have to be conscious about that because, you know, work and uh, what we do in the last mile, whatever, can sort of trickle into everything. Um, so we, we're sort of disciplined about that too. Um, but, you know, she has been a, you know, huge part of any success we've had. And um, we come from very different backgrounds. Um, I grew up in Southern California on the beach, and she grew up in, in New York and Long Island. Um, but we, we sort of joke like when we were 19, if we went to a bar together, we would have turned the other way and not even paid attention <laughs> to each other. It's like, uh, um, it's like Green Acres. Remember that show? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, but we just, you know, have a lot of the same perspective and interest, and and um, we're we're our best friends. I don't want to get too sappy for you, but we are best friends, and and um, you know, um, she's just been extraordinary in my life. So, I feel very fortunate with that. Um, and you know, it's. A lot of people say, you know, how do you work together, let alone how do you spend pretty much every waking moment together? And I think it's because there is respect for each other. Um, we have a very clear delineation of who does what. You know, she does stuff that I don't like to do and and vice versa. Um, so it works out really well. Who washes the dishes? <laughs> uh, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, note taken. Um <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, those are things that, um, you know, there's some things that, that maybe, you know, people can do for you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it, there are, you know, there's a few people that we know that work together, um, and you know, they, they sort of share the same perspectives as we do, but, um, it's, it's been extraordinary. Yeah, I've been trying to get uh, Julia Hartz and, and uh, her husband on the show, um, so you can you can send this yeah. episode to them if you if you know them. They, um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I actually um, was at an event with Julia a couple months ago, and um, Kevin, uh, we've known. You know, he was an investor in some companies we were involved in, so they're uh, they're fantastic people, and um, they've done extraordinarily well, and they've been able to you know have that balance as well. So they'd be great to talk to. I will send this that soundbite to them, um, <laughs> and we'll get them on. Uh, so I have a quote from you that I read that I thought was really interesting. It says, to stay relevant in today's market, you can never stop learning, and you must remain open and receptive to change. Um, can you dive deep on that for a little, for a second? Yeah. I mean, it, this, this is a really difficult market to be in because it changes all the time. So <clears throat> I spent a lot of time just studying, learning, um, getting a lot of input. Um, because technology's changed so fast. And also, you know, I'm not 20-something anymore, you know, and 
um, I think there's a perception that if you're older, that you're not as aware. So it makes me um, even more conscious of that. So I work really hard on staying relevant, understanding, you know, we have a specific market sector that we focus on. I, you know, I need to know everything about that market and constantly be learning. Um, so, you know, that's part of my daily regimen is doing that um, because I do have to sort of overcome that perception like I don't really know what's happening today because it's really only millennials or 20-somethings that, that really know, um, and especially because we are investing in a lot of technology that, that does evolve, and I spend a lot of my time with, uh, with people that are relatively young. You know, we've got, you know, CEOs in our portfolio that are, you know, in the early 20s, you know, the first, uh, one of our initial investments was in a guy named Brian Wong, and Brian is the youngest guy to ever get venture capital. I met him when he was 18 years old. So had to stay relevant. You know, we had to have be able to have those conversations and um, not like father-son, but like peers. So, right. you know, that's something that uh, is really important for us to be successful. Well, two words for you on staying relevant with the, with the youth. Skinny jeans. <laughs> that's why I'm on the paleo diet. <laughs> Um, although I wear fat jeans, but that's a whole other whole other thing. Uh, so the show is called Innovation Crush. Um, what do you see out in the marketplace that you're currently crushing on? And I'm sure you see a lot, but what's one thing you go, oh my gosh, that is absolutely amazing. It might be art, it might be food, um, it could be something that you're looking at right now. Um, but you, you, you know, you, you I, I, I leave it to you. Well, there's a lot of things. I mean, you know, we we just got somewhat um, involved in um, esports, you know, and if, and um, sort of the, the whole gaming market is huge. Um, so, uh, you know, that's an area that a lot of people that are not involved in, and look, I'm not a gamer, so I don't play games all the time, but that whole market is just exploding. Uh, so, you know, if you look at Twitch, if you're familiar with Twitch, you know, Twitch has huge audiences. Mm-hmm. And gamers that are on uh, YouTube are making millions of dollars. Uh, and it's they're basically just playing video games. <clears throat> so that's that's a market that, if unless you're in it, you don't realize how big that is. And they fill auditoriums for competitions. <clears throat> yeah, so, I, I actually... You I, know, that's, that's one area that is not going away, and it's just growing. Um, you know, we're... It's a little bit more boring, but, um, you know, we're very data-centric. So, you know, we uh, look at the use of big data and how it relates to businesses. Uh, You know, one of the companies that just um, raised a couple hundred million dollars uh, is in our portfolio called Domo. Um, You know, Josh James is a two-time successful entrepreneur. He took a company public um, back in 2006, which we were investors in, and he's just a phenomenal guy. But it's this idea of taking data and understanding how to run your business more effectively. Um, that's just, you know, you hear a lot about Internet of Things. Um, so, you know, we're going to have data around everything that we do and everywhere we go. So how do you um, utilize that data effectively right. um, in, your, in your life? You know, obviously wearables is an offshoot of that because, you know, now we we have the computer is on our wrist now and uh, it's taking our life signals as well, right? So um, we're going to be very conscious about 
everything that's going on in the world and also everything that's going on in our body based on what's, what's hanging around our wrist. So those are some of the things that, to me, are pretty exciting. Right. Um, and, you know, all of those are going to evolve significantly over the next five to ten years. Yeah, one of the things that kind of impressed me at CES this year was kind of like exactly what you're talking about is the application of data, right? We've spent so much time collecting it, and now you're starting to see, you know, more predictive products. So things that are doing the service for you ahead of time, whether it's, you know, take your medicine or uh, here's a better route for you to go get to work or just kind of but based on your, you know, your habits and your behavior that have been collected over, you know, course of yeah. a period of time. And- and even shared economy. I mean, we look at how, you know, Uber is the classic example of how things are being disintermediated and, and how, you know, um, institutions are being disrupted significantly. And that's just going to happen more and more and more. Yeah. Um, well, even so, even Uber mentioned, I mean, I think it was last year they announced that they can pre- predict where you're going um, within 75% accuracy before you even set foot in the car. <laughs> it's like um, just based on where, what city you're in, what are hot locations, where you've gone previously, average drive time in the city. It's it's pretty crazy. Like, you know, without you saying a word, they can be like, all right, here you are. And like, oh, how'd you know I was, how'd you know I was coming yeah. here? Or you're a part of that 25% and you're someplace where way off base um uh, last it's but- pretty crazy we uh you know when we when we had kick labs in um uber was just starting they were in uh, rocket space um and it was ryan graves and a few others and you know they're just kind of tinkering away and um no one knew at the time that they would be what they are today but it's it's been interesting because we we saw them from a very very start and how things have evolved there crazy uh last but not least uh, complete this phrase for me. Innovation to me is is all around. Innovation is sometimes in the places where you le- least likely expect it, but innovation is all around us. I love it. I love it. Um, where can people find you, Chris? Not me, you. <laughs> um. They can uh, depends on what they're looking for. Um, <laughs> you don't have to give me home they, address or anything. I'm just you know. Just, <laughs> are you on the I'm social media? Fran- I'm in San Francisco. Um, you know my my email is chris at transmediacapital.com. Um, you're more than happy to you're welcome to to send me an email. Um, if you're interested in the last mile, um, you can go to to thelastmile.org, and there's a uh, there's a page on their info page where you can send us an email, and we 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 have someone that that receives and responds to all of those. Um, so yeah, um, that's how you can get a get a hold of us or me. That's fantastic. Uh, well, thank you for joining us. This has been um, real. Like I have like ten other questions I want to ask you, but uh, we'll have to save it for for part two. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody, this has been another installment of Innovation Crush. I'm your gracious host, Chris Denson, and we'll talk to you next time. If you like listening to comedy, try watching it on the Internet. The folks behind the Sideshow Network have launched a new YouTube channel called Wait For It. It's got interviews with comedians like Reggie Watts, Todd Glass, Liza Schleichinger, Schleisinger, I've been friends with her for 10 years, 
one of the funniest people out there, and I still have a hard time with the last name, Liza. Our very own Owen Benjamin, that's me, takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more. You don't have to wait any longer. Just go to youtube.com slash waitforitcomedy. There's no need to wait for it anymore because it's here and it's funny and I love you. A few days ago, Brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and three comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.